This week I spent uh, a number of, of hours watching the Olympics or having it on and seeing a number of great athletic feats. And it was interesting watching the, the medal stands. I don't know, especially for swimming. I don't know if they do, did this for all the sports. But for swimming, the, the, the athletes would get up there, and especially the team, team events, the relay events, they would all be standing up there. And do you remember what they were wearing? Medals. Nice. <laughs> yes. But they had these gray jackets. And I didn't think anything about it because I thought jackets were jackets. And, and silly me, there was this whole controversy that I heard on the, the radio the next day about why are they gray jackets and why aren't they red, white, white and blue and, and you can't even see United States on the back. And, and here I thought they were jackets. They sort of look nice, I thought. And it's, it's, it's interesting how we can get so worked up about clothing and, and this whole scuttlebutt over, over a jacket. You know, I, I'm the type that I just need my wife to check me as I go out the door. <laughs> and, and she does. And every now and then she's like, why don't we go back inside? And, um, because guys and girls are different. You, you go to, to a group function, and I, I know girls don't like, most girls don't like to have someone else wearing the same thing, right? It's like, because it's, guys, when we go into a room and we see someone wearing the same thing, it's like, whew, I got it right. <laughs> and, um, it, it's, or not, yeah. But the fact, we went to an event last night, and I'm like, okay. Because you don't want to wear a, a formal when everyone else is in shorts or a, a coat and tie or the other way around. You, you, you want to fit in. And, and so it's just a different way of thinking. And as we come to the passage today, Paul is using a clothing metaphor. And I'm like, oh, great. Clothes. My, my, I, I know nothing about clothes. But, but it's interesting because he's using it as a, a metaphor for what kinds of things we should do to build community. When I saw the metal team on the stand with, with their gray jackets, my thought was, that's a team. Because they were all wearing the same thing. That's a team, they're together. And, and so my first thought was, wow, that looks really good because there's solidarity, there's harmony, there's unity. And that's where Paul is going to go today with our text as he talks about how do we get along as a body of Christ? How do we get along with each other? How, do, how does this side of the sanctuary get along with this side of the sanctuary? Even though one always thinks they're right. And there's arguments over the window. No, just kidding. But how, seriously, things can come into play when we have a family of Christ that can really distract from what God is trying to do. And so if you'll humor me this morning, I'm going to run with what Paul does and what Paul says, the clothing metaphor, and talk about what should we put on? What should we put on as the body of Christ? Turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 12 to 15 this morning. Colossians 3, 12 to 15. And last week we went through verse 11. But, but just looking back two verses from where we're starting today, we see Paul start to use this clothing imagery to, to illustrate something, a truth about how we live with each other. In verse 10, and have put on the new self, actually go back to nine, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with his practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge, after the image of its creator. 
And the words for put off and put on there, some of your translations translate clothe yourselves or do not clothe yourselves. And it was the, the Greek word for putting on clothes or taking off clothes. And so Paul is very intentionally using this idea of what we wear to illustrate how we act. And last week we talked about getting, getting rid of the smell and getting rid of all of the dirty clothes, the stinky clothes, the clothes that need to be washed, that need to be destroyed. And this week, so last week was the put off. This week, Paul comes to the put on. Put on. What should you wear? What should I wear? What should we wear as the body of Christ? And I think it's very, very insightful that he's using the imagery of putting on clothing. Because when we put on clothing and wear it throughout the day, think about some of the things that clothing does. It covers us all day. It, it, it is something that people see all day. It's a part of us all day. You can't go and interact with someone without your clothing covering you. And so when Paul starts to talk about characteristics we're to put on, it's put on these clothes. They're to be with you every moment of the day. They're to cover every action, to cover every thought. So, so appropriate that he's using this imagery of putting on clothing. He's going to share with us conduct that is part of life, that is always to be worn. Conduct that should match our faith. Conduct that matches our new life in Christ rather than the old life that we put away. In verse 12, you see him start there. Put on then. Put on then. And it's this, okay, what clothes do you wear? And the, the verb there is an imperative. It's a present imperative, which means start doing it now and keep doing it. This is the instruction for you. This is what God's people should be characterized by. And so we come to these four verses, hopefully with eagerness. How do we deal with each other? How do we deal redemptively with each other? These passages, I, I, I challenge you this morning as we study them, that this is a, a log and spec passage. This is a chance that we sometimes have where we could point out other people that are not doing this, but that's not what this morning's about. This morning's about saying, what is the Holy Spirit saying to me? How do I need to apply this? How do I need to hear the Holy Spirit speaking? So we come to verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. We're going to pull apart the verses here. There's so much that, that Paul is saying. But the first point comes out of that first phrase, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. We need to wear the clothes out of the right closet. Wear the clothes out of the right closet. I said I was going to run with Paul's metaphor. We're, we're going to run with it. Remind yourself whose you are. Remind yourself whose you are. See, the thing about putting on clothes at home, it's pretty important that I get my clothes. Right? If I tried to take Mark's shirt and put it on, it gets up an arm. And that's about it. It doesn't work. Spouses, you want to make sure you're in your closet. It just doesn't... We want to make sure we're in the right closet. And that's where Paul starts. You might be going, where are you going with this? But he starts with reminding the Colossians what closet they're to get their clothes out of, what their identity is, what they should be putting on, and who it should come from. Put on then, and he gives three things, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. 
as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. And he's reminding them, you've put away the old clothes. That's in Satan's closet. That's in the evil one's closet. You should be putting on things that are indicative of being chosen, of being holy, and being beloved. Powerful start to this passage. He begins by reminding us of our identity. And as we deal with each other, as we deal, learn to deal redemptively with each other, the first thing is to remember whose we are and to remember who's everyone else in this room, who, who they belong to. Three things, God's chosen ones. Speaking of God's sovereign elections, that He chose us, that He drew us to Himself, And it's not by our merit. I can't save myself. I can't be good enough. I can never atone for my own sins. But it's a status that is given to me because of God's work. But think about what it means to be chosen. Think about, go back to grade school when you're choosing teams. What did it mean to be chosen first? It it meant something pretty special, right? Now, I was always the smallest kid in the class, so I'm not sure what that felt like. But, but it, it, it means to be chosen and, and picked by God to say, you are important enough, you are special enough to me because of my love for you that I will bring you into my family and make you my own. Amazing. We become an extension of Him as His children. And so as we begin to figure out which clothes to put on as how we treat each other, we're chosen. Second word there is holy. Again, this is not something we do on our own, but by the blood of Christ, which we sang about this morning, by the work of Christ, by the forgiveness of Christ, we are set apart for Christ. Holy means to be set apart for something, for a specific purpose. And in this case, set apart for Christ. We're called to live differently, to be radically changed. If we live in Christ, we will be radically changed. Finally, the third identity that he gives us to make sure we're getting our clothes out of the right closet is that you're beloved. You're dearly loved. And as we we think about how I interact with other people, a foundation has to be an assurance that I am dearly loved by God that I am accepted by God, that I am forgiven by God, that He has brought me in. And so we're chosen, holy, and beloved. Just an interesting side note, these words would have had great meaning to them. Especially as the Judaizers, the Jews were saying, you have to be a Jew, you have to, be, you have to do the things we want you to do to be a Christian. And the, the Gentile Christians are saying, well, I, I don't know that we have to. That... The church said we didn't have to, and there's this argument over that. These three words, interestingly enough, were how the children of Israel were often described in the Old Testament. They would have heard this phrase, and, and they would have heard chosen, holy, and beloved, and their first thought would have been, that's Israel. And Paul is saying, no, that's you. That's you. You have been grafted in. Deuteronomy 4.37. Let me just read a couple verses from Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 4.37. And because He loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them and brought you out of Egypt with His own presence by His power. In Deuteronomy 7 and 14, identical verses. 
For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession. Do you see all three there? Holy, chosen, beloved, or treasured. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And Paul is reminding them that as Gentiles, as Jews, they are all part of God's family now. We see that in 1 Peter 2.9 in the New Testament describing the church. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. So Paul begins by saying, remind yourself whose you are. You are chosen by God, which gives incredible steps status that we can never get on our own. We are holy, being called to live differently. We are beloved and accepted by the Lord Almighty. So then Paul moves on in the second half of verse 12 to say, okay, that's the foundation. If we don't get that right, we can't treat each other right. If we don't understand God's forgiveness and what He's done for us, we can't overflow that to anyone else. So the next point, point number two, is we need to wear clothes that go together. Or put on attitudes that promote harmony. Put on attitudes that promote harmony. This comes back to Susie checking me before I go out the door and saying, oh, those colors? Oh, no, 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 no. no. We, got, we want to put on clothes that go together. We want to, to make sure that we're living in a way and have attitudes in a way that are promoting unity, that are promoting harmony in the body of Christ. And we're to go to great lengths that do that. Paul gives five things at the end of verse 12, and it's another set of five. We looked at two sets of five last week that we're to put away. Now he counters that with a set of five things that we're to put on, the clothes that we're to wear. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. These are qualities that Christ, that God exhibits, and we're to imitate Him in our lives. It's supposed to be like father, like children. It happens with our own children so much for the good and sometimes they mirror things that I wish they hadn't seen. But these are things that build the body of Christ. Let's run through them. And and all five relate to each other. Last week we looked at a sequence. These have a little bit of a sequence, but they're more just interrelated. First one, compassionate hearts. And Paul is referring here to a deep sensitivity and longing for other people. He uses the same word here that we saw with Jesus when it, when it says in Mark, we studied this, when He went ashore, He saw a great crowd and He had compassion on them. And it, it's like from the bowels, from the stomach, you long for somebody. That was the seat of their emotions. So this isn't a light word. It's being moved to my innermost parts for somebody. We see this in God to us. But the first thing Paul says is we need to care so deeply about everyone else in the body of Christ that we're moved for them. Whether we, whether we enjoy being with them, whether we don't get along with them, are we moved for them? Are we compassionate for them? Then he moves to kindness. See, if we're not compassionate in our hearts, it's hard to be kind. And kindness is a, is a gracious sensitivity toward others. It's being willing to do good for someone else. In spite of what they might have done. In spite of whether they deserve it. It's always to be triggered by a genuine care for their feelings. 
Do we make life easier for those around us? Are we able to act in a way that's for their good, not ours? Interestingly enough, it's the same word that Jesus used when he said, my yoke is easy. Like, what? Uh, how is that? But, but he's saying, my, my yoke is good, my yoke is, is easy, I'm coming alongside to help you with that. And we get a picture of kindness where we come alongside and we act in a way that is helping someone. If we have compassion in our hearts, if we begin to exhibit kindness, then that will result in humility. Humility. Or it needs to be tempered rather with humility and that needs to be part of it. It's easy to get proud when we're kind to others and, and doing things for others and hope to be noticed. And it's interesting that kindness is a fruit of the Spirit. It's not something that comes naturally. And so how would we be proud of that? How could we say, oh look, I'm so kind. No, that's coming from the Holy Spirit. It's coming from the Holy Spirit. And so in humility, we, we, we find ourselves able to be less ourselves and exalt someone else. Humility was not considered a virtue at the time. In fact, it was considered, uh, it was looked down on. If you were humble, you were low, you were lowly. But it's a willingness to serve others without being noticed, without receiving honor. It's understanding our position before God. And really, doesn't that tie into kindness? Because if I, if I understand my position with God, if I understand that He is God, I am not, and I have received everything I have from Him, then, then I can then overflow with that to other people. So humility helps us have kindness. And in fact, usually if we're struggling with kindness, we're also struggling with pride. Because we're putting ourselves first. There was a story of an interaction between George Bernard Shaw and Winston Churchill. And, and George Bernard Shaw sent Churchill a note with some tickets. He said, Enclosed are two tickets to the opening show of my first play. Bring a friend if you have one. A little bit of fun happening here, but it helps illustrates. Churchill replied, Dear Mr. Shaw, Unfortunately, I'll be unable to attend the opening night of your play due to a prior engagement. Please send me tickets for a second night if you have one. And that was a playful interaction between friends. But sometimes we can have that same kind of interaction where we, we need to respond in kind. At least we feel like it. And we need to respond in a way that is jabbing back. And we see from these two things that God is instructing us, have kindness, do good for others, but in humility. Not, not worrying about ourselves and our own rights. Not needing to be recognized. Not needing to be right. Not needing to, to know what's going on and, and to, to have it our way, but to put others first. Put, put others first. So we have compassion, kindness, humility, and out of humility we see meekness. Meekness. And he didn't say weakness. And meekness is one of those words that's misunderstood again in our culture, and we think, oh, a meek person is a weak person. But remember, the word for meekness means power under control. Power under control. It was used sometimes of a horse. A horse has a lot of power that was bridled. And so that power was controlled and directed instead of run loose. 
It was sometimes used of wind, and a gentle wind could be a meek wind because it was holding back a great power that could tear down buildings and trees in, in, the, in the form of a storm. And what a great picture of what we are called to be because our words can hurt. Our actions can hurt. And God says, no, that needs to be under control. Power under control is willingness to make allowances for others. Willingness to ignore certain things and let things go because I am under control and I don't have to exercise my power to deal with that. One author said it's a willingness to give up one's rights for the sake of another because Christ is our example. MacArthur said much the same thing when he said it's a willingness to suffer injury rather than inflict it. Meekness. Willing to come under control as opposed to rudeness or arrogance or harshness. And we see that in Christ. We see both humility and, and meekness in Him as He gave up what He would rightfully have. In Philippians 2, 3-8, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And we see a perfect example of humility and meekness. He had all power. He has all power. He created all things with a word. And he was willing to put that aside, the exercise of that aside, so that we could be reconciled to him. What an example of the right clothes to put on, the right clothes that bring reconciliation and harmony in the body of Christ. The last word in verse 12 there that Paul uses is patience. Patience. And it's similar to meekness, but, but an outworking, sort of an outward display of meekness. A willingness to endure wrongs. To refrain from exacting revenge. One author wrote, the ability not to become frustrated and enraged, but to make allowances for others' shortcoming and to tolerate their exasperating behavior. Patience. It's one of the clothes that God says we should put on. See, we're to wear clothes that go together. We're to wear clothes, attitudes that bring harmony to the body of Christ. Patience is having a long temper, not a short temper. And that doesn't mean that we have a temper for a long period of time. But it takes a long period of time before we get angry. And that's hard, isn't it? We don't want to do that because we want to defend ourselves. Because we want to take God's job and exact revenge. We want to know the person has paid enough and it's been dealt with. That's coming from a superior attitude, not a patient attitude. Praise God, He showed patience with us. 1 Timothy 1.16, But I received mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. And Paul is saying, man, Jesus had to show me a lot of patience. I was a jerk. I was killing Christians. And He showed me patience. 
And through His kindness, He led me to repentance. And He sought me out. Praise God for what He's done in our lives. May that overflow in how we treat each other. So we're to wear clothes that go together. Point number three is the next verse, 13. We're to wear clothes that stand up to everyday use. Forbearance and forgiveness are the tests of our attitudes. Let me repeat that. We're to wear clothes that stand up to everyday use. Forbearance and forgiveness are the test of our attitudes. I am amazed at what my boys can do to a pair of pants in one day. We get a new pair of pants and we send them outside or they go outside, they're playing and they come back in and in one day there's holes in the knees, they're filthy. How do they do that? They just have this, I don't know, maybe they have a secret pair of scissors out there. No, no, they're, they're just playing, they're using them in everyday life and these pants are falling apart. So they end up with a lot of shorts. Because pants with holes in the knees can easily become shorts. But Paul here in verse 13 says, that's the list of five things. Now let's test it. Now let's test if your attitudes, if your clothes characterize those five things. See, all of those five things, kindness and humility and patience, they all require what? Other people. And other people, when we start interacting with other people, it gets messy. There's friction. There's times that they annoy us. There's times that they sin against us. There's times that they frustrate us. There's times that they hurt us. And so Paul says that's going outside and trying out the clothes. Let's see if those five things really do characterize you. And let's test it with hard people. And so in verse 13, he brings up two ways that we test. The first is that we're to bear with one another. Bearing with one another. And, and the idea here is, is taking someone that we have personality conflicts with, someone that annoys us, someone that frustrates us, and can we bear with them, put up with them, and tolerate them? But it's not tolerate as in I'm still going to be angry and I'm just going to put on a good face on Sunday. No, it's tolerate as in I can let it go and I can move on with life and not let them affect me. Because they are chosen, beloved, and holy, just like I am. And so Paul says, bear with one another. Endure. Move on and ignore it. Let go of the attitude. It's interesting in this verse, bearing and then forgiving is the second half of the verse. Those are both present participles, which means it's it's an ongoing action which means we will always be bearing with one another. And we will always be needing to forgive one another. I can remember John Nelson, when I was engaged to be married, he pulled me aside and said, you need to learn forgiveness, young man, because you're going to be practicing that every week, every day of your married life. You both need to learn it. And oh, no, no, we'll never have anything to forgive each other for. But just the little things in life. And he was saying it's an ongoing, it's something that needs to happen. And this is so important, which is why Paul brings it up here in the body and how we come together. It doesn't stop. One author wrote a short little poem, To live above with the saints we love, oh, that will be glory. 
But to live below with the saints we know, well, that's another story. <laughs> Isn't that true sometimes? We have 200 people here. They have different personalities, different ways of doing things. And God's Word repeatedly says, bear with one another. Put up with it. Don't let it affect you. But then he goes on in the verse and he gets a little bit more personal. That part we can say, okay, I can do that. But now he says, if one has a complaint against you. And that word for complaint is something that causes fault or blame. If someone sins against you. If someone has a debt against you. Something that is their fault. Now that's a, that's a bigger test of whether we've put on these five attitudes, these five pieces of clothing that represent harmony. And he says in verse 13, if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. And then he reminds us of the basis. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And there's verse after verse after verse. You have the parable of the debtors that say, look at how much God has forgiven you. Can you give a little bit of that to each other? Forgiveness here is commanded. It is not an option. Ephesians 4, 31 and 32, a parallel passage where, where Paul is saying much the same thing to the church at Ephesus. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. The word for forgive here, I think, is one of the most misunderstood words that we have. We have so many things that come into forgiveness that when we're young that I think completely distort God's view of forgiveness. Because we think forgiveness is something that we have to wait for the other person to do something for. And biblically, that it just isn't true. Forgiveness is something I do. Because the word here is releasing it. Releasing a debt to God. And it's an, it's an issue of saying, am, am I the best person to deal with this or is God the best person to deal with it? Forgiveness doesn't mean they're off the hook. Forgiveness doesn't mean that what they did was right. Forgiveness says, I'm not going to be responsible for this debt. I am going to let God be responsible for this debt. Which is better? And so to the word to forgive here is to graciously release, to let go of, to cancel a debt. And the idea of the word is that it's often undeserved. It's not something that we wait till the person deserves forgiveness, but something we are to practice every day from day one if someone sins against us, if someone harms us. Now that's hard. That goes against everything we think in America. It's hard to forgive. It's hard to let go of that. But it's what God says is the ultimate test of are we living in community. As God has forgiven you, forgive others. Because God pardons us, and He's the only one that can pardon sin. We can't pardon someone's sin. As God pardons us, we can let go of our issues with each other. We're then free to release people in situations to God. This is the test of all five things above. See, forgiveness is a door to release joy and love. 
but it's a small door that you have to stoop to go through. We have to be humble to go through it. We have to have compassionate hearts that long for each other to go through it. We have to be willing to be meek and let go of an offense and keep our power under control. We have to be patient to let go of it. Now, this doesn't mean that it's a free ride for sin. There are times to address sin. And, and in Matthew 18, we see you go to a brother that has sinned against you. And you, you, you talk to him and you work it out. But later in that passage, we see Jesus saying, and if they, if they repent, then don't even bring it up again. We forgive on our own. We let it go to God. We have a human responsibility to address it, but then to let it go. Sometimes we get frustrated. Sometimes this is hard because we're like, well, I'm not sure if their heart's right. It's not our job to know that. Jesus says to Peter, forgive him. Forgive him. Let God deal with it. See, we need to show grace. Show grace as a community. Not an attitude of, I deserve this or I want this but unmerited favor. The people we show grace to often don't deserve it, just like we ourselves don't deserve it. We need to wear clothes that stand up to everyday use, that stand the test. Paul ends with two more things. Number four, we need to wear a good belt. Good, I got one on. Wear a good belt. Love, love must motivate every action and attitude. Verse 14, and above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And he's still using the clothing metaphor and the idea is that once you have all your clothes on, they would take a belt and wrap it around themselves that would hold everything together. And they could tuck their robe in if they needed to move quickly. And it, it, it held everything together in a way that it was all useful. Maybe for us, we, we don't use a belt that way, but maybe it's an overcoat of some sort. And Paul is saying, what brings all of these things together? It's an attitude of love. All of these qualities must be motivated by love. And as you look through Paul's writings, love is central over and over and over again. 1 Corinthians 13, 13. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three. But the greatest of these is love. It's the first fruit of the Spirit. The law, he said, is fulfilled in love. The cross was God's act of love. And we're to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us. Do you love God's people? That's the question that comes out of this. We can focus on all of these different qualities. We can focus on, am I bearing with one another? Am I forgiving one another? But the bottom line is, am I going to love or am I not going to love? Can we look at anyone in this room and say, I love you? I love you. That's the instruction from God. Because when it's people that we love, we're so much more willing to put on those traits. Man, with our kids, there's things that annoy us, there's things we get frustrated with, but when they look at us with those eyes, 
and we gather them into our arms, love is covering all of those things. Do we have that attitude with each other? And finally, verse 15, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called into one body, and be thankful. And point number five there is trust the designer. Trust the designer. I guess there's designers for most clothes. And they know what they're doing. But in this case, God has designed His church. And the second half of that, let Christ's design of peace and unity guide you. Let Christ's design of peace and unity guide you. And let the peace of Christ, peace being harmony and well-being, and it's referring to the reconciliation that Christ bought on the cross. The peace that He bought between us and God. And then that He wants between His, His, His believers, His church. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. And that word for rule there is the same one we saw in chapter 2 where he said, do not let anyone disqualify your umpire over you. And we saw people that were running around and umpiring saying, that's right, that's wrong, you need to do this. And he said, don't do that. Well, now he uses the same word to say, you want an umpire? You want a rule of life? Ask yourself the question, does this reflect the peace of Christ? This is the real umpire. This is the real rule we should follow. Does this honor the sacrifice of Christ on the cross? Does this honor the peace that Christ wants in the body? Because you're called to that. Not an inward peace, but an outworking peace where I'm a peacemaker. I challenge us this morning to remember the cross. And to remember that through the cross... Jesus gave us peace with God who should have killed us for our sin. And we were undeserving. And Christ brought that peace. And that's the same rule that we should apply to every one of our interactions with each other. Am I reflecting the peace of Christ? Am I reflecting that to fellow believers who are chosen holy, and beloved by God. And he ends with a verse that we'll talk about, or a phrase that leads into next week's passage, and be thankful. And be thankful.